Well, if you have your Bibles with you one more time this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Psalms, Psalm 24. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 582. If you're a guest with us, we've spent the summer studying the Psalms, and today is our last day in the Psalms, and we're looking at Psalm 24 this morning. And I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject today, the King of Glory, Psalm 24. And this is what the Word of God says. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he's founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, And be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, states, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people have ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. And for this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. The first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon agreed with Tozer. And he said, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature of God. The person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. And friends, to see the validity of Tozer and Spurgeon's statements, we need look no further than the latest news cycle. The increasing crime rates, the landscape of the average church, and the state of all of the mainline denominations in our country. The fact of the matter is simply this. The glory of God has been diminished. 
And a high view of God has been overshadowed with a high view of man. And this is why Psalm 24 is so important to our faith. For as our knowledge and view of God goes, so goes our lives, our families, our churches, and our nation. And you and I will never rise above our thoughts of God. A high view of God will lead to high and holy living. But on the other hand, a low view of God will lead to low and debase living. And this is why Psalm 24 is so relevant and so important. Psalm 24 is a psalm of David, a hymn of praise to God who is celebrated from beginning to end as the king of glory. The background of this psalm is the return of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem under David's leadership in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And you'll notice as we've read through the psalm together that this psalm fits the context of a liturgy of worship and it is sometimes referred to as an antiphonal psalm. That in verses 1 and 2, a leader asks the questions with the opening. And in verses 3, 8, and 10, questions are asked. And then the people answer in verses 4 through 6 and 8 and 10. Additionally, it is important to note that this psalm was used in worship and sung every single Sabbath morning in the early church. In this psalm. David gives us a fresh vision of God and His glory, beholding His sovereignty, His holiness, and His might. And the words of this psalm need to reorient our view of God. And they should reignite a passion in our lives to serve Him and to worship Him and to give Him glory that He is due in every single area of our life. And so with that in mind, would you note three major truths with me this morning? First, in verses 1 and 2, I want you to see that the King of glory is a sovereign God. David says, beginning in verse 1, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And you'll notice that at the outset of this psalm, David gives a dramatic declaration of the Lord's sovereign authority and his sovereign ownership of his creation and all that his creation contains. And this declaration in verses 1 and 2 reflects the very first words of our Bible. For in Genesis 1, 1, the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is what David is testifying to in verses 1 and 2 of this psalm. He is reminding the people of his day and he is reminding us that the Lord, Yahweh, is not only the God of Israel and not only the God of America. Yahweh is the God of the whole world. Yahweh is the creator and the owner of every nation in the world. He is the creator and owner of everyone who dwells on the earth. And he is the creator and the owner of all of the fullness that the earth contains. This is David's declaration in verses 1 and 2. Dale Ralph Davis in his book, Slogging Along in the Paths of the Righteous, 
it gives a helpful and pointed reminder of the emphasis of verses 1 and 2. He said, David simply wants to keep you from punifying Yahweh. From thinking that he is simply the divine mascot of some Middle Eastern Israelite ghetto. No, the earth, the world, the whole shouting match, he says, is Yahweh's. It all belongs to him. And in verse 2, and David reflects back on creation account in Genesis chapter 1. And his words reflect Genesis 1 verses 5 to 13 where the Bible describes the account of the firmament, the division of the waters, and the appearance of dry land. And the language that David uses in verse 2 is emphatic. It could literally say this, He himself, Yahweh himself, and no other created the earth and everything that it contains. And this language is not only uh, emphatic, it is also poetic. For David pictures in verses 1 and 2 the world as an ordered creation. And look at the language that he uses. He uses two main words for emphasis in verse 2. He says that it is founded and it is established by God. The word founded that he uses refers to Yahweh's initial creative act in Genesis chapter 1 where the Bible says that he spoke everything into being. This word founded means to fix firmly, to build up, to lay its foundation, to set something in place. And David is testifying to what the book of Genesis testifies to, that God is the creator who spoke everything into existence and he firmly established all of creation just the way he intended. And the word established that he uses in verse 2, it is connected to the word founded. It refers to what one repeatedly does. And what David is saying is that God didn't just speak creation into existence and leave it to itself. No, he founded it and then he established it. He continues this very moment, as you'll see in a passage of scripture that I'll show you in a minute, to care for and sustain every single thing that he has made. And what David is reminding us of this morning is that all of creation has its origins and all of creation has its foundations in Yahweh and therefore all of creation is answerable to Yahweh. He is the creator and owner of everything including you. James Hamilton in his commentary on the Psalms describes these verses this way. He says, this means that there is no realm that he does not claim as his own, no plot where his sovereignty does not hold sway, and no corner or crevice where he will fail to enforce his will. Moreover, all living beings belong to the God of the Bible. Did you hear that, friends? All living beings belong to the God of the Bible. No creature is autonomous. Neither fleas nor flying things are free from his authority. All humans in all places belong to him, along with all rock badgers and rats and bats and bullfrogs everywhere. David declares in Psalm 24, 1, that Yahweh owns all territory everywhere, as well as everything that lives. The Lord owns it all. The world has one creator, and the world has one life giver. Thus, in turn, the world has one judge, and the world has one savior and Yahweh is his name. That is the point of verses 1 and 2. This Lord of glory, this God that we have come to worship is a sovereign God and he is sovereign over every single thing. 
And friends, when we leave the Old Testament and we move to the New Testament, do you know what we find in the New Testament? We are reminded that all of creation belongs to Jesus Christ. Listen to the beginning verses of the prologue in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And listen to John's testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And listen to verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. All things were made through the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul testifies to this truth in the book of Colossians and in one of the greatest passages on the Lord Jesus Christ that you will find in all of God's word in Colossians chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. This is Paul's testimony of Jesus Christ and his work of creation. For by him, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him And all things were created for him. And he is before all things. Listen, and in him all things hold together. Oh, you think that the world is falling apart this morning, but the testimony of the word of God is that this very moment, even with all of the chaos and confusion in our world, the Lord Jesus Christ is upholding the universe by the word of his power. He is holding all things together. This king of glory, this sovereign God. The writer of Hebrews testifies to what John wrote and testifies to what Paul wrote about Christ in his creative work. And in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, this is what he said. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Listen, Christ He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature and upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so if I can for you this morning summarize those three passages that I've just read to you about the testimony of the New Testament as it relates to Christ, the King of glory, and his sovereign work of creation, it would be this. Since Christ is before all things, and since Christ created all things, and since Christ holds all things together, and since all things were created for Christ, we are to serve Christ, we are to worship Christ, we are to find our life in Christ, and we are in every aspect of our life to give glory to Christ, because He is the sovereign King of glory. And friends, because the earth, the world, and all of its contents belong to Yahweh, I'll remind you this morning that there is a steadiness and a stability about living life in God's creation. That because He is sovereign over all of this, we are saved, listen, we are saved from fear and anxiety because of the faithfulness and the power And the sovereignty of Yahweh. And so I ask you this morning, are you currently, this very moment, resting in his sovereignty? Are you resting in his sovereignty for changes in the climate? 
Are you resting in his sovereignty for the rise and the fall of nations around us? Are you resting in his sovereignty for the extreme weather? Are you resting in his sovereignty for your job? Are you resting in his sovereignty for your marriage? For your children? For your family? Could it be this morning that the unsteadiness and the instability that you feel is a direct result of your lack of rest and trust in the sovereignty of God? Because the sovereignty of God is a soft pillow. The sovereignty of God brings steadiness. The sovereignty of God brings stability. And even in the midst of all the craziness and the confusion of this world, friends, the king of glory is on his throne. And it is a sovereign throne. It is a stable throne. It is a strong throne. He is in charge. If you're here today and you're struggling with thoughts of homosexuality or transitioning to a different gender, would you hear the words of Psalm 33, verses 8 and 9? And this is what the psalmist declares. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Let me pause for a moment. That's everyone. That's you. That's me. That's the whole world. Everyone who is alive. Let all the earth stand in fear and awe of God. Whether you believe in Him or not. This call is for everyone to stand in fear and awe of Yahweh. Why? For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. And friend, I want you to know this morning that these verses testify to the fact that his creator, God, is to be revered. God is to be honored. God is to be respected. God is to be worshipped. He is sovereign over everything that exists in this world. He has made everything that is in this world, including you. And as Genesis chapter 1 states, when Yahweh finished His creation, He looked at everything that He brought into being and He said, It is good. Meaning that He made no mistakes. That his creation was perfect, exactly the way he wanted it to be, including you. And trying to identify or change your gender, or pursuing homosexuality. Listen to me, friends. I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear this morning. I'm going to tell you the truth, because I love you enough to tell you the truth. You're surrounded by people who don't love you. Because they're telling you everything that you want to hear. And in love, I want to say to you that by trying to identify with a different gender or transition to a different gender or pursue homosexuality, you are in sin. It is sin. And you're saying, you're saying this morning that God made a mistake with you. You're saying that you know better about your life than the one who created you. You are saying this morning that you are more powerful than the omnipotent God because you can change yourself. Think of it this way. 
It's as if we were in a pottery class and we all had a lump of clay. And we looked at the lump of clay and we said to the clay, Clay, tell me what you want to be. Tell me how you want me to form you. And the clay would give the potter instructions. Now, how many of you would stay in that class? No, no, no. The potter forms and shapes the clay into the object that it is building and creating. And the potter does it personally with his own hands, working and forming. And friends, that is just the way that God created you, personally. The fingerprints of Yahweh are all over your life. And to reject that and to try to do something with that is to reject God and to say that you know better and that you're sovereign over Him and you're in charge of Him. No, friends. Can't you see that God is the potter and you're the clay and you're in His hands and He's formed you perfectly just the way He wants you to be. And listen, you're in submission to Him whether you want to be or not. You either submit now or you'll submit later, but one day you're going to submit to the Creator. And so your struggles are not with your identity or your gender. Listen to me. Your struggles are not with your identity or your gender. Your struggles are with your sin. Your struggles are with your view of God. Your struggles are with your unbelief. Your struggles are with your view of yourself. So why wouldn't you turn from your sin and turn from your unbelief and turn from your rejection of this God who created you and knows you and owns you? And turn to Him in fear and trust to find your identity and your purpose in life. Oh, listen to me, friend. You will never find purpose, meaning, or identity in life apart from the one who created you. Never. Unbeliever, would you listen to the invitation of the psalmist in Psalm 100, verses 1 through 3? Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Do you hear that call, unbeliever? You are to know That the Lord, the Yahweh, this one that I've been proclaiming and that David has been proclaiming and setting before you in verses 1 and 2. This Yahweh is God. That he's your creator and you belong to him. Would you turn from your sin and turn in faith and trust to him today so that you would meet your creator as your shepherd and not as your judge? Who is the king of glory? Well, the king of glory is a sovereign God. But he's not only a sovereign God. In verses 3 through 6, David says that the king of glory is a holy God. Look carefully at these verses. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. The king of glory, this sovereign God, David says, listen, this may be the most important part of the sermon right here. He can't be approached lightly or flippantly. Why? Because he is a holy, righteous 
God. Spurgeon said, there should be some preparation of the heart in coming to the worship of God and to the hearing of the gospel. Consider who he is and whose name we gather, and surely we cannot rush together without thought. Consider whom we profess to worship, and we shall not hurry into his presence as men run into the fire. Do you hear the urgency in his voice? And just pause and let that sink in for a minute, friends. What kind of preparation did you do this morning before you came to encounter this holy God? I bet for many of us, we will do more preparation for what we're going to do tomorrow morning than what we did this morning. And what we're doing right now has eternal consequences and significance. And it's all about our diminished view of God and His sovereignty and His holiness. And friends, when you have a high and lofty view of God, it causes you to view the worship of God and the preparation of the worship of God differently. It's not a thing that you come to to be entertained. It's a thing that you come to to engage in and to participate in and to give of yourself to. That you can't just stand there and listen to everybody else sing and you not sing. Because if we want to just be biblically honest about it, the Bible says that when the Lord Jesus Christ changes you, He puts a song in your house heart a hymn of praise to this God and when you stand and you don't testify with your voice do you know what you're really testifying to you haven't been changed you don't have a song it's flippant it's irreverent how can you come to the house of God and say that you're hungry for the word of God and never bring a bible How can you come and punch the clock and as soon as amen is said, you're gone and you're left in the dust. You don't care for the people of God. You don't care for the building of the church and for God to use your gifts to stir you up and encourage you. No, 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 no. You just come to take, take, take. You never think about how you're going to give. You never think about the person who's sitting beside you that might have a broken heart today who might need you to pray for them and encourage them and stir them up. No, 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 no. I've done my time. I mean, I've done extra my time. I've listened to a long sermon. Like, I'm out of here. And you say that's worship. And you say that's pleasing to God. Oh, you're, you're deceiving yourselves. Like, even... With that kind of posture, if it were real in your life and it would take you to heaven, you're going to be miserable there. Hey, if you can't sing here, you're really going to have trouble there. If you don't like people here, you're going to hate it there. But you don't think about it. No, no, no. You come flippantly. And, and I want you to look at the text. I want you to look at verse 3. And I don't want you to just glance over these questions. These are eternal, significant questions that David is asking. And he says in verse 3, two rhetorical parallel questions. And these questions emphasize the holiness of God. So here's the first one. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can come into God's presence? 
And this is a reference to Mount Zion. And it looks back to Psalm 2.6 where the psalmist says that the Lord has installed his Messiah, his anointed, his king. And look at the second parallel question. And who can stand in his holy place? This is a reference to where the tabernacle and the ark of the covenant dwell. It looks back to the righteous person of Psalm 1. And it anticipates the answers that are going to be given in verse number 4. Who can ascend his hill? Who can come into his... Listen, who can come into his holy presence? Oh, you've forgotten that you've come into the presence of a holy God this morning. And notice, in the second question, the idea is not just who can come into his presence, but who can remain in his presence. Do you see it? Who can stand? It's not that you just casually come in. Who can stand in the presence of holiness? Now let me show you what he does in verse 4. In verse 4 he answers the two questions. And he gives four characteristics of those who would enter into the presence of God. Look at him carefully. These are eternally significant. The first one he says there must be right living. In verse 4a, he says they have to have clean hands. It literally means to be innocent and free of guilt. It refers to right actions. This person who would come into God's holy presence must be free from sinful actions and clean in what they do. It speaks of the outwardness of their life, that outwardly their life is a life of holiness. They have right living, right actions, right conduct, clean hands. Number two. At the end of verse, or the middle of verse 4, right thinking, they must have a pure heart. This moves from the outward to the inward. It refers to a right attitude. This person must be blameless. They must be free from impure motives, impure thoughts, impure choices, impure emotions. It speaks of an inward holiness. Outward and inward. In other words, there's no discrepancy in their life. What you see on the outside is the same as on the inside, outward and inward. Number three, they have to have a right relationship with God. Look at what he says. They do not lift up their soul to what is false. To lift up your soul to something is to direct your desire toward that thing. This person doesn't disgrace or dishonor God by being a hypocrite. They don't have divided affections. They don't desire what they shouldn't desire. They don't worship what is not worthy of their worship. They're in a right relationship with the God who created them. And number four, they're in right relationship with others. They do not swear deceitfully. It means that this person knows nothing of dishonesty. This person knows nothing of deceit. This person knows nothing of impure motives. Their speech is marked by integrity. They do not swear false oaths to gain an advantage over other people. They live in a right relationship with other people. And listen, we get the clean hands. We get the pure heart. Some of us even get the right relationship with God. But do you know what we give a pass to? Right relationships with other people. We think that we can treat anybody the way we want to and be justified in our actions because they deserve it, in our opinion, and come into the holiness of God and worship Him as if nothing has happened. 
And do you know what that is, friends? It's sin and it's deceit. And Jesus spoke against it. And in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 24, this is what he said. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. What does Jesus say that you should do when you're not in right relationship with other people? Well, before you come and offer your gift, before you come and sing your praises, before you come into His holiness, you better drop whatever you're doing and go make it right with that person. That's what He's saying. And yet we willingly know that we're in wrong relationships with other people and we come to the Lord's table and we act like it doesn't matter. We just take His bread and his cup and we do it in an unworthy manner and we justify ourselves in it the whole time and you want your pastor to believe that you have a proper view of the holiness of God no 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 friend there is a reason why the Bible gives a warning about the posture of your heart and how you come to the Lord's table You're drinking judgment on yourself when you do that. You are ignoring your sin. You are discounting the holiness of God by saying you can have broken relationships and you can have a whole line of broken relationships in your family, with your coworkers, with your friendships, and you say it doesn't matter because you're right. You're always right. Have you ever noticed that? You're always right. Do you know what David is saying? You can't come into God's presence like that. Your worship is nothing. It's empty. You've allowed your heart to deceive you. You've allowed your heart to grow cold and hard. Nothing moves you. To enter into the presence of God and commune with Him. Do you know what this text is saying? You have to be perfect. There can be no sin in your life. There can be no impure motives. No wrong choices. No wrong thoughts. You have to be clean. You have to be pure. You have to be perfect. And Psalm 15, it's a companion psalm to Psalm 24. This is how David said it in Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor. Nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a vile person is despised. But who honors those who fear the Lord. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Who does not put out his money at interest. And does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Psalm 24. Psalm 15. Perfection. And so I ask you this morning. 
Who among us in this room can meet these standards? Anyone want to raise their hand and say they can do it? Anyone? Which of us would dare to say that we have the slightest stain of sin on our hands? That our thoughts are always pure? That we've never told a lie to protect ourselves? That we always tell the truth? No, friends, when you take these verses seriously and you truly understand the holiness of God, it absolutely humbles and crushes you. You're nothing. I am nothing before this holy God. The answer to the questions that David poses in verse 3 is this. There's only one who had such clean hands that it is said of him in Acts 10.38, he went about doing good. There's only one whose heart is so pure and dedicated to God that he could say in John 8.29, I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. There's only one so devoted to the glory of God that he alone can say in John 17.4, I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. There is only one whose words were of such truthfulness and integrity that the Bible says in 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Yes, there is only one man who can ascend the holy hill of Zion and stand forever in the holy place. And that one man is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can come into the presence of this holy God. Do you know what the good news of the gospel is this morning, friends? What Yahweh demands, perfection, he provides. In his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said of Christ, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Oh yes, friends, on the cross, Jesus Christ took all of the sin that you would commit with your hands upon himself. On the cross, Jesus Christ took all of your impurity upon himself. On the cross, Jesus Christ took all of the scorn and the contempt and the hatred and the rejection that you've given to God and he put it upon himself. On the cross, Jesus Christ took the pain and the burden of every broken relationship in your life upon himself. The one who knew no sin took all of your sin upon himself so you could be set free from your sin. But if that's all he did, you would just be neutral before God. God would just look at you and say, okay, I see that there's no sin in you because it's all on my son, but I don't see any goodness in you. And that's why the latter part of 2 Corinthians 5.21 is so important. He didn't just take your sin upon him, he took all of his righteousness, all of his goodness, all of his perfection. And when you turn from your sin and trust in Christ to be your Savior, he doesn't just take your sin away. He takes all of his righteousness and goodness and he credits it to your account. So that God looks at you, he doesn't see you in your sin, he doesn't see you neutral, he sees you perfect in his son, Jesus Christ. And because you're perfect in Christ, you can come into his presence. Because you're coming with the perfect righteousness 
of the king of glory himself. Listen to Spurgeon preach to you for a minute, will you? It is possible that you are saying, I shall never enter into the heaven of God, for I, for I have neither clean hands nor a pure heart. Then look to Christ, he says, who has already climbed the holy hill. He has entered as the forerunner of those who trust him. Follow in his footsteps and repose upon his merit. He rides triumphantly into heaven, and you shall ride there too if you trust him. But how can I get the character described, say you? The Spirit of God will give you that. He will create in you a new heart and a right spirit. Faith in Jesus is the work of the Holy Spirit, and it has all of his virtues wrapped up in it. Look to Christ. And I would say to you this morning, because I am confident, I, here's how confident I am. I know that this pulpit is going to hold me up no matter how much I move around and how matter loud, no matter how loud I get. I know I'm solid and secure right here. And as confident as I am in this stage, I am confident in the fact that in this room there are people who are not right with God. There are people who don't know Christ as their Savior. There are people who have flippantly come into the holiness of God this morning. There are people who don't have right relationships in their life this very moment this morning. You've justified it all. You've ignored it all. And the Holy Spirit is convicting you even now. That's how confident I am. That's what I believe is happening in this room. And you can cry out to him right now and you can ask him to forgive you of your sins and save you. You can cry out to him right now and ask him to forgive you of the bitterness and the malice and the hatred and the broken relationships that you've committed to. And you can get them restored right now, today. You can do it. The question is if you believe God's that holy and God's that powerful, then he's demanding that of you. But it could happen right now. Now look at the text. That's the weight of it. What does he do? When well, verses 5 and 6, he comes out of the requirements, and he gives three promises to those who meet the requirements of verse 4. Do you see it? He says in verse 5, first, he'll receive blessing from the Lord. It carries the idea of a gift, of enrichment, of spiritual and physical favor, uh, this blessing is grounded in the promises of God. It finds its expression in the high priest Aaron's prayer of blessing. In Numbers chapter 6, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, the one who is in right relationship with Yahweh, the one who is in right relationship with other people. Uh, through the work and the merit of Jesus Christ alone on their life, they receive blessing from God. Your life is blessed. It, it's wrong theology. Don't tell people to be blessed. If they're a Christian, they are blessed. They're blessed in Christ. That's what he's saying. Second, notice what he says in verse 5. He receives righteousness from the God of his salvation. God pronounces us to be right in character, right in conduct, right in relationship with him. We are accepted in Christ. We are vindicated in Christ. We can stand in the holy presence of Yahweh because of Christ. And then third in verse number six, look at this. Verse six is awesome. It's awesome. You don't believe it's awesome, do you? It is awesome. I'm telling you it is awesome. David says that those who receive the Lord's blessing and the Lord's righteousness in verse five, they're like Jacob. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, Jacob was a lot of things, if you know his life. But in Genesis chapter 32, verses 24 to 30, we learn that Jacob wrestled with God. 
And the Bible says that he sought the Lord all night and he would not let go of God until God blessed him. And Jacob named that place Peniel, the face of God. And this is what he said at the end of the account. For I have seen God face to face and my life has been spared. It's been delivered. He received the blessing and favor of God. And David is saying in verse 6 that when you receive the Lord's blessing and the Lord's righteousness, you're like, da- you're like Jacob. What does that mean? He's teaching us that through the work of his son, God is not raising up just a Jacob who would seek him and not let go of him. Look at the text. Look at verse 6. He's seeking and raising up a whole generation of Jacobs who would seek him with their whole heart, who would serve him wholeheartedly, who would worship him and never let go. And he's seeking this generation through the work of his son. Now notice how verse 6 ends. Do you see it? Selah. Pause. Think about that. Think about how God is raising up a generation to seek him through Christ. Think about that. Think about how God has provided what he requires in and through his son. Pause and think about that. And I want to help you think about that. If you're a Christian parent or grandparent, have you ever prayed these verses for your children or grandchildren? I have. Do you pray that they'll know Christ as their Savior? Do you pray that they'll exhibit the four characteristics of verse 4? Do you pray that for your children? That your children will exhibit verse 4? Do you pray that Yahweh will bless them? Do you pray that Yahweh will grow them in righteousness? Do you pray that they'll be a part of a generation that Yahweh raises up who will seek him and serve him and never let go? Do you pray that? I can't think of greater prayers to pray for my children and grandchildren than these verses. Do you pray that? If you're a believer, these verses should remind you that you should never allow yourself to forget your sinfulness. And the fact that you stood guilty before God. J.C. Ryle said, above all, let us pray for a deeper sense of our own sinfulness, guilt, and undeserving. This, after all, is the true secret of a thankful spirit. It is the man who daily feels his debt to grace and daily remembers that in reality he deserves nothing but hell. This is the man who will be daily blessing and praising God. Daily in blessing and praising God. Thankfulness is a flower which will never bloom well except upon a root of deep humility. Friends, have you forgotten where he found you? Have you forgotten what he saved you from? It could be the source of your pride. You've forgotten. You've forgotten the riches and the kindness of his mercy and his grace. And I want to challenge every student, every junior high student, every college student, every high school student. I want to challenge every young married couple. I want to challenge all of the singles pursuing careers. This is my challenge to you. Pursue God 
like verse 6, like Jacob, and never let go. Be a part of a generation that Yahweh raises up for himself and for his glory. And never lose sight of it. Never let anyone distract you from it. Be sold out for it. And you'll never regret it. You'll never regret it. Well, this king of glory, he's a sovereign God. This king of glory, he is a holy God. And I'll summarize the rest of the psalm for you. He is a mighty God. And verses 7 to 10, it has pictures in it. The first picture is the historical context of the psalm. David is bringing the ark of the covenant, which represented the very presence of God. That when the ark came in, it was as if the presence of God had come in. And David is bringing that up to Jerusalem. And he's got his whole entourage with him. And the worship leaders are in the front, and they're crying out, Lift up your gates! Swing wide, you ancient doors! Let the King of glory come in. Lift up your gates. Swing wide your ancient doors that the king of glory may come in. And here's the picture. How do gates get lifted tall? How do doors swing open wide? It's the picture because this king is so glorious, he will not bow down. He will walk in power and triumph through the gates and the doors, receiving everyone's homage and worship. And praise. And so the call goes out. Open the gates. Open the doors. And then the response comes. Who is this king of glory? Look at the text. The Lord. The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. The Lord of hosts. The Lord of angels armies. He. He is. The king of glory. And do you know. When you fast forward to the New Testament. A similar scene takes place. Jesus is headed into Jerusalem, but he's riding on a donkey. And both sides of the street are lined with the people of his day singing joy and celebration and praise. And then they crucified him. And he rose from the grave. And he was standing on the mountain giving final instructions to his disciples And he ascended back into glory and sat down at the right hand of the Father. And can't you just picture it as he ascended into glory? Lift up your gates. Swing wide, you ancient doors. The King of glory is here. Do you know the Bible says that one day Jesus is going to receive that reception again? Because he is going to leave the splendor and the glory and the majesty of heaven. And he is going to get on a horse And he is going to come back to the earth. And he is going to wage war on sin, the devil, the demons. And he's going to have a banner across him. The Bible says it says, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's going to reign victoriously. And then he's going to usher in a new heaven and a new earth. And we'll be with him when that call goes out again. Lift up your gates. Swing wide, you ancient doors. The king of glory has arrived and he is victorious in triumph. That's the picture. What a picture. And I'm going to end with what Dale Ralph Davis said because this will encourage you. How heartening to know that through all the years, Yahweh has never ceased to be a warrior. 
The glorious king is, of course, glorious in all our circumstances, be they afflictions, conflicts, or routines. But his being mighty in battle shows how his nature is adapted to our needs. For that description tells us Yahweh is not only the God of the sanctuary, but of the field. Not merely the God of the shrine, but of the marketplace. Not only the God of the church, but the God of the foxhole. So I plead with you not to allow those who only want to speak of a Jesus meek and mild to rob you of the manly, viral comfort of having a God who is mighty in battle. Jesus, the King of glory, will come as a warrior at the last day. Thankfully, how often He also comes in the midst of our current troubles to bash to bits the fetters of the enemy and to take up the cudgels for His weary and crushed people. You have no comfort if the King of glory is a wimp who reeks of hand cream. You only have solace if He is your defender in the thick of war. And notice the end of the psalm. Selah. Think about that. This is the king who's coming back. Friends, this was an early hymn in the early church. And they sang it in preparation for the king of glory's return. Now wonder today, if he would return this very moment before this service is over, if you would receive him with joy and celebration as the king of glory. Or if you would receive him with scorn and contempt and rejection. It's life or death. Your view of God determines how you live your life. Your view of God will determine your eternity. A high view of God, high living, high worship. Low view of God, low living, debased worship. He is the king of glory. Whether you make him that or not. Let's pray. God, thank you for this psalm. Thank you for all the psalms. Thank you for giving us a language to understand you and to communicate to you. We treasure these psalms. We thank you for this study these past few months. We just pray that you would use it in our lives and the life of our church. And I pray, God, you would take people who are apart from you in their sin and you would draw them to yourself this very moment. I pray that you would take what is broken and you would restore it. I pray that you would convict of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. I pray that you would change our attitude about how we approach you and about how we approach one another. And I pray, God, that you would build your church and your people today through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.